Eager documentarian, now in all your guises, what tempts your curious camera in all the worlds of crisis? Powerful narrator, tempt emotion with your voice. Who speaks for people, creatures, things that cannot give their choice? And humble, wanting audience, we wait and watch for truth in fiction. What to say when passion, vision, thoughtfulness is exiled from our diction? Ooh. I felt like a very charged poem. Well, uh, it, I guess it turned out to be that case. Yeah. But I was really just trying to unite these three rather disparate uh, topics that we're talking about today, mm-hmm. all still under the umbrella of education. Of course. Tenth episode in the series. Yeah. Loving the series so far. Really excited to talk about these things because they're very Solacene-ish. I agree, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're going to start off by talking about, uh, obviously trying to answer the question that we came up with on last week's episode, which is, how do we teach talking in the Solacene? Mm-hmm. And so far, um, I guess, with the podcast, I don't think we're really a good example of how teaching should be taught, <laughs> unfortunately. But there's some pressure sometimes. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. So how did you go about answering this question? I went about what do we lack in terms of talking because obviously everyone learns to talk from a young age in one way or another, some language, but it's like you can know how to talk, but we want people to know how to speak. speak. So I started out by saying we're going to have a foundation in people learning how to listen and gather information well Mm -hmm. because often we'll speak and just do so for the sake of it. We don't care if we're heard. We don't care if the other person asks us any questions. Perhaps we're not prepared for those questions if they do come. So allowing people to appreciate listening so that when they're speaking, they kind of know what they're, who they're speaking to or what kinds of things they should, points they should hit. Because once someone told to me, they said, okay, you're telling a story. No one's going to care the exact number of meters in between the two buildings you're walking. No one's going to care. Yep. Like the really specifics, but what they will remember are the emotions and the senses. So speak to those when you're speaking. And I feel like that's a good example of you're kind of speaking to the listener, but you have to be an informed listener to do so. Yeah. And also, I mean, there's the conversational aspect of it. It's mm-hmm. for, for for speech, thought, the logos to be animate. You have to be actually paying attention to what the other person's saying mm-hmm. so that what you're saying is, you know, relevant and bringing things forward. Yeah. But even I think in, in monologues, like let's say there's someone on a stage giving a lecture or a exactly. professor for this uh, topic, they're always listening because mm-hmm. it's still like a dialogue between them and the audience. Mm-hmm. Are people yawning? Mm-hmm. Are people saying, ooh, does anyone have, you know, is anyone asking questions? Things like mm-hmm. that. And that kind of informs the way that they are talking as well. Do you think you're a good speaker? Perhaps. Mm. I believe I am at least average when it comes to speaking. Staying on the fence as always. Yes. I've had a decent amount of experience, so I'm now not one prone to stage fright, I suppose. Hmm. So I feel like that was kind of half of it. And when I was thinking about teaching speaking, I also thought a lot about practice and giving people the opportunity to be on stage, to be in kind of heated arguments, but in a safe space so that when they then go on to the real world and they're perhaps in a workplace and someone's combative, they have a way to stay composed because they've trialed it in a safer space and so yeah one of those things that I have in terms of this I'd say I have a decent confidence when speaking I think that's something that should be instructed in the solo scene definitely definitely should I think that's something that 
it's it's a difficult thing to teach because almost all your students will have an aversion to it. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're trying to feed them something they don't want, but mm-hmm. it's good for them. Kind of, I remember that uh, that was always the case in, in pretty much at every level of schooling, right up to undergrad. Mm-hmm. Whenever there'd be a public presentation for the class, group or or single, everyone would be. You could just tell everyone was like desperate to to not do it, mm-hmm. and that doesn't seem so natural to me. I know we, we've talked yeah. before about how the modern times kind of creates introverts and you know, our seclusion doesn't, doesn't help in these kind of situations with regards to, as you said, stage fright or social anxiety. One, I guess, concrete solicini tip or just, just a personal tip in general that mm-hmm. I found because I used to be really, really bad at speaking, um, certainly in front of audiences, but even just to strangers, especially if there were more than one of them, is, um, is yeah, that, that listening tip, which is you don't focus on yourself when you're talking, you focus on the other person and then you kind of let your natural humanity come through mm-hmm. in, in response to that. Yeah, I've always been one who loves listening. Like, I'll go to a social event and just listen, not necessarily speak, but then I feel like when I do not work up the nerve, when I do feel like I have something to say, I feel like this is important, this actually adds to the conversation instead mm-hmm. of just, oh, I need to say something I haven't talked in five minutes. Like, I feel like in the solo scene, people will be comfortable with silence a bit more yeah. and therefore a bit more confident when they do speak because sometimes you'll be like, oh, we're having a conversation. You and I have a lot of conversations about soccer football yes and I'll feel like I need to say something but I'm like I literally have nothing to add to this conversation (laughs) and so often I just listen try and absorb as much as I can and then formulate a question or formulate a thought (laughs) because it's tough for me because you know so much but I don't like the idea of you you treating it so kind of like um uh, professionally as if you just have to yeah I do with every conversation we have (laughs) (laughs) how healthy that is I'm joking, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> one question I said, when you said something, you know, you wait until you have something worth saying. Mm-hmm. Do you, okay, I guess it's a two-part question. What's worth saying? And also, is there small talk in the solo scene? Mm-hmm. I think there's small talk in the solo scene. I mean, it's a bridge to deeper conversation often, yep. but it's not going to be so common. I mean, I've had entire friendships. I've known someone for three years, say, and we really never like got past the small talk phase. So perhaps part of the soul scene education would be how to get past that phase. Because you need to know the basics of the person you're talking to. Where are you from? Do you like the city? What did you study? Like those are all small talk, just kind of pre-programmed questions. But I was thinking some of the things we could teach would be a bit more deep programmed questions for people. That way, oh, you meet someone, you get through those first few things. Oh, how old are you? Just like simple questions. Yeah. But then some like slightly more deep questions that just come naturally because often deep questions don't come naturally to us. So I think there'll be small talk, but less. And what's worth saying? I would say if it's encouraging, if it's informative, if it's clarifying something, if it's reiterating something. And obviously if you are giving a lecture or you're monologuing could be emotional could be just you're really excited about something mm-hmm. make sure that the other person wants to hear it i suppose mm. because i feel like you could have something a really cool idea but if the other person's just like not having a good day and doesn't want to hear it like then it's not worth saying because it's kind of lost does that make sense no it, it like, does it has to be kind of progressing both people in the conversation because you never just talk 
alone. So I feel like that's something I didn't think of even preparing for this idea of how to teach speaking. It's like, I was thinking very isolated. How do you speak? How do you teach the person to speak? But it's always going to be a conversation. So I guess remembering that. Exactly. And I think another thing to mention is that when we say like, how do we teach talking in the solo scene? I'm, for the most part, not envisioning a classroom where the kids all sit down and we say, mm-hmm. this is how you talk. That some elements of that I'll, I'll get into, but for the most part, it's how does the solo scene teach talk? How does the time itself? Because mm-hmm. we were talking about a small talk and we were like, it's annoying how common this seems to be mm-hmm. and how shallow even long conversations can be, which is what mm-hmm. I find most frustrating. But it's like, that's just the times, mm-hmm. I think. So the solo scene is like, things are always happening. There's adventure and there's like a mammoth running around. So why would there be any small talk with mammoths? That's the question. Why would there be small talk with megafauna? But the way that I approached this question was um, just acknowledging that, of of course, how we say things is is just as important as what we say. And I think this is, again, a problem that or an issue that I faced with the fact that so much of our communication now is just written. Mm -hmm. We focus exclusively on the, the content of the speech or even the grammar. You know, like I think I'm quite a good writer. I can make things sound fluent and fluid and um, there's ups and downs and there's a good rhythm to it and things like that but mm-hmm. it, writing is not talking like that's there's a mm-hmm. whole other skill set so it doesn't translate so it's like how do you actually say things not, not just mm-hmm. how you phrase them but the humanity behind it kind of so yeah i was trying to ask so how should we say things mm-hmm. and i came up with three three key traits sounds like a book i'm selling <laughs> but the first one was originally we should say things originally which mm-hmm. means that we should try to speak in a way that is not just an amalgam of various phrases and words, buzzwords, catchphrases that we've heard from other mm-hmm. speakers on similar topics. And kind of the 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 um the attribute behind this is that we need to think originally. Like mm-hmm. we need to be critical and creative thinkers in our own rights. And that's obviously a, a different element of education in the solo scene that we want to push a little bit more today. Actually maybe that's something we can talk about for next week. Because we have like how to teach talking. What about how to teach thinking. Yeah, that's a good question. But um, yeah, I think for, for original speech, you need original thought. Mm-hmm. You need to think, okay, what are the conversations we're going to be having in my life? Like, you don't have to explicitly think that, but perhaps in the school setting, you're teaching kids about science, and then you say, you're going to be discussing this, not just you need to know the facts and how to do it on paper. Like, think about how this can translate to a conversation and like, I guess that's kind of the real world application of all of these things that aren't initially seem like they're going to be relevant in the daily world. But I think, yeah, like reading up on stuff. Okay, I like talking about sustainability. I need to know more than just the phrases that people put on like Instagram posts. Mm -hmm. I need to know how to substantiate these because it's not just when you come up against people who are contrarian to your point. You say, oh, I'm really passionate about climate change. And they say, why? But it's also like, they want to learn more. You have to be able to teach them more and yeah, you have exactly. to be able to engage them in your thoughts or else you're just monologuing. And no one's listening and you're not engaging. A good um, a good piece of advice I've had on that is if you want to give a, a genuine talk on something like a TED talk or a lecture, you shouldn't, like what you're saying should only be a maximum 10% of what you know on the subject. Mm-hmm. Quite often I think we um, speak as if we're professionals, but what we're saying is the extent of what we know on a subject. Mm-hmm. That's 100% of it. Which, um, I mean, when you're in that situation, I think we've probably all been there um, and you start feeling the, the worry because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, they're treating me like an expert, but 
I'm running out of things to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you know more, then you can you can be more fresh because you're not always just repeating yourself and you can draw from different mm-hmm. examples and you yourself might not know what you're going to say next. Yeah. Like that. The next uh, trait that I thought for good speech in the solo scene is we should speak boldly. Mm-hmm. And I was just imagining a room, say an office or a school classroom, uh, maybe in a university where everyone isn't so focused on coming across inoffensive mm-hmm. and keeping conversation light. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, we don't want people out there degrading other people or no, something. No, 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 no. But it's like often when you're in a classroom, you feel like you need to just say the things that are that the teacher have always said mm. or you've heard other students say you're not because you don't want to be wrong. You don't want to be in opposition with someone on a perspective, something that's not necessarily concrete and it's a bit more ethical. Yeah. But like just in the solo scene, there'd be a bit more of a culture of acceptance in that, okay, this person is in a different opinion than me. I don't need to come at them and like attack them. It's just like or subsume my views to theirs and just let them walk all over me because I think we have yeah. we have such a culture even in academia which is the scariest of um, agreeableness above everything else mm-hmm. like we always made a meme of it that in our classrooms every time things would be open to discussions when there was any discussion it would always be the the student's contribution would always be prefaced with yeah just building off what you said or just building mm-hmm. off what you said it's just like why don't you just say something different yeah even if you maybe even if you even if you don't believe it yeah just to be just to spark something. Yeah, sometimes I always get frustrated at this one person in a conversation who's like, well, I'm just playing the devil's advocate. And I'm like, he doesn't need an advocate. Like, it gets really <laughs> frustrating. But some, I think it's just because we're so used to no one... No one ever doing it. Ever doing it. And I, this is kind of off topic, kind of on topic. But I found when, like, in a friend group, say you have an issue and you come to your friends and they know you super well, they trust you, you trust them, and then you say, I'm having this issue. Nine times out of ten, they're going to just say the advice they think you want to hear, mm. what they think will serve you best, but not actually like practically serve you best, but serve your mental state. You're like, oh, I'm having trouble with this guy. Like, I don't know. Should I leave him? Should I stay with him? And then they just say what they kind of have heard you say, but they don't think critically for themselves before speaking. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do. Cool. And I know that uh, agreeableness and disagreeableness, that's just an innate trait. Mm-hmm. But I think our, our comfort with situations where our views are being challenged is, mm-hmm. is probably the best way to put it. And I also think the internet has affected this and will in the solo scene as well, like in reverse. Mm-hmm. Because I think now that so much of our hostility and vitriol mm-hmm. um, goes online, usually anonymously, yeah. we kind of just walk around without any of that in us. Mm-hmm. Or without any of the, the energy in us. Mm-hmm. I still think conversation should always be civil and mm-hmm. should always be polite. But yeah, we, we shouldn't be afraid to share opposing views. Mm-hmm. The next uh, and final trait I thought was rationally slash honestly slash humbly. Mm-hmm. Sounds kind of like a tongue twister, but what I mostly meant by this was intelligently. So like we think before we speak mm-hmm. or if we don't know much about what we're talking about, we admit it. That's something yeah. I like to do in conversation to say, why well, I don't actually know much about this before I pitch in because mm-hmm. there's no, like, there's no shame in that. I don't know. Yeah. It's being transparent. We're all humans and we haven't been on the earth for like 300 years. So there's yeah. no way that you would be an expert on every topic, mm-hmm. but I think we feel compelled these days to front like we do. Mm-hmm. And also with speaking, I think comes a certain flexibility. It would be nice if this goes back to listening. We could actually listen as in 
take those views on board, change our own. I always like mm -hmm. um, asking people and thinking for myself, when was the last time I changed my mind on something? Because mm -hmm. I think it's such a telling question. Yeah. Because we, we sh really should be changing our minds as often as possible. Yeah, it's true. That made me have two thoughts. One was that I was thinking the other day when we were eating something, I was just like, you know, meal thoughts. Yeah. And I was thinking, do you think 30, 30 is probably a good barometer, years ago, someone who said, okay, I'm vegan. And then we're going to go over to grandma's house for dinner. Oh, she makes a really nice, like, full traditional, like, meal for us. And then you eat something that isn't vegan. And then I feel like 30 years ago, that would just be, they're still a vegan, even though they maybe ate an egg or something. But I feel like today, if that happened, say I went with my siblings and I said I'm a vegan, and then I eat something, my siblings even would like attack me and they'd be like, you shouldn't have eaten that. Oh, like, yes, yes, because yes. it's almost like, because of the way that the internet functions, hmm. is that everyone's like held to this standard of perfection. And I think it's good to not be hypocritical, especially online. We talk about this all the time of like, just be transparent. But I think because everyone isn't transparent and it's like, you see people with like a million followers who say they have this lifestyle and they don't branch from it. So if you make any mistakes or if like you're afraid to make mistakes almost and then when you're having a conversation and you're afraid to come off as not an expert to be like called out or something. Yeah, you, you're walking a tightrope in, in your lifestyle and also in your speech. Mm -hmm. And also what you were saying about the veganism, it's like our identity is kind of a pledge now rather than just a, mm -hmm. a t-shirt or something. Yeah, and then the second thought I had was that podcasting is fun because we always <laughs> say at the end of an episode, what, like I didn't even mean that when I said that, but this is the only time in our lives that we ever speak for an hour straight. We can have conversations, but we're never speaking kind of stream of consciousness. And I feel like it's a fun exercise because it makes you realize the flaws and how we've learned how to speak because we just kind of do, 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 and then you reflect back on it. But I feel like perhaps in the solo scene, we'll instruct people to have a bit more of a quicker like turnover of like reflection hmm. so that they can come up with ideas on the spot as they translate it into speech. My next uh, thing I wanted to mention was the ways that we're actually going to teach it. Mm -hmm. And I think just debate seems, seems very, very healthy. Mm -hmm. Like genuine, what do they say, real-time uh, conversation. Because mm -hmm. the thing with, again, text or internet, it's not actually real-time conversation. Because mm -hmm. you can, I've always said with debates, it's like I think I'd be a really good debater if it was turn-based. Correspondence. So it's like yeah. Correspondence, because I could have time to think about it, process my thoughts, uh, find flaws in their reasoning, mm -hmm. you know, formulate an argument and put it forward articulately. Mm -hmm. But if it was ever, I, thankfully I've never been in a situation of a, of a in-person debate, it would be messy. Let's put it like mm -hmm. that. Because I get sweaty. Yeah. And then we just revert to like these natural primal conversation <laughs> tactics of like insulting the person <laughs> or of like, well, yeah. and then like getting all defensive. But, but I do think that's the majority of the population. I do think most of us are, are uncomfortable if not incompetent in in any kind of real-time debate about anything substantial mm -hmm. because and it's not it's not always because we're we don't know about the subject it's just because mm -hmm. our brains and our our brains don't work quick enough for our <laughs> mouths or vice versa mm -hmm. whichever whichever so practice, is true practice 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 yeah from a young age especially so yeah. so we're not just like we would offer debates in some of our courses but mm -hmm. by the time you're 17 or 18 it's too late 
Mm-hmm. You have to do that from a young age. Yeah, and it's not just for debates in real life. It's for just normal conversations. Yeah. Because it's like, yeah, you're sitting around a campfire having a chat. You want to be able to speak well instead of just it all being... Yeah, to be funny as well. Yeah. It's about timing. So mm-hmm. it's, it's very similar. Yeah. Kind of lump that in with just with a general reading out loud, speaking out loud practice. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I think we, we stop doing this so young. We stop reading out loud in class or yeah. ever. We stop ever reading out loud. Like there's probably some adults who haven't done it for like 15 years, mm-hmm. which, is, uh, which is weird. And, and we've noticed even on the podcast, speaking just from your brain is different from reading mm-hmm. uh, from a pre-selected quote, story, excerpt or, or poem indeed as the episode start. Because it's always so much more stressful when you're reading mm-hmm. it. And we, no- we notice that, like, our mouths always get very dry. Like, when literally, the sound of our voices changes. Yeah. It's very odd. But I feel like we have a bit of an advantage listening to ourselves so much. Yeah, if you <laughs> want to call it that. But I think practicing pronunciation, I mean, you're never too old to do that because there's still mm. a lot of words that I, I can't say very well to get, especially when they're paired together. Um, intonation, speed, all these things. Like, I, I think it's just a skill that people should work on. I, I think mm-hmm. it's a, that would be nice. I agree. One way that I thought we could teach it, which I find I learn a lot from as an adult, is listening to other speakers, especially people from different places, even different languages, seeing how they put emphasis on their words and they express their emotions, because then you can kind of choose what you like and then reproduce it in your speech, but not being like that one professor you had who just sounded like Barack Obama. Right. Like you could close your eyes and you'd be like, Obama, and then you'd you open them and you'd say, oh, he's white. It's a white man. Of the studio. But I wanted to mention him on this, on this episode because uh, with regards to modeling, <laughs> mm-hmm. I had not like practically, but literally never been in a class with a teacher who quite evidently had put so much effort into their, mm-hmm. um, the way they were speaking. Mm-hmm. And like you, we still remember it because he, yeah. he was a good speaker. He was. Like it was very derivative. But he was a good speaker and, um, and modeling, right? That's modeling. Mm-hmm. I do think that's... Do you, have you noticed that in any of your speech? You, oh, yeah, who? for sure. Well, one thing that comes to mind is when I was watching Schitt's Creek, like the TV show, I just started talking like the characters for like a solid couple months afterwards. And I would catch myself and I'd be like, that's just not how I speak. But I'd be like, like delivering punchlines in the way that they would. And it I was like... insufferable a little bit. It probably was. <laughs> but I found I had that like influence and i'm sure watching seinfeld i'm probably absorbing a little bit of their speech patterns (laughs) but for me it's always with comedy yeah no i I, yeah i've noticed that as well with Mm -hmm. myself like i don't really binge media but if i do it tends to be podcasts Mm -hmm. and then i notice it my my speech very oh my goodness yeah i was like binging there's this one studio like the pushkin industries they have a bunch of shows but there's one woman who's on a lot of them and sometimes on a when we're on on air on the podcast, I catch myself delivering things like yeah, she does, deliver the, which uh, isn't a bad thing. I like because I feel like I if you like it, yeah, and if you blend it with yourself and with mm-hmm. other things as well. But this goes with what we were saying a few weeks ago about music, which is we have to be very careful about what we're just plugging straight into our ears mm-hmm. because we start modeling it without even noticing. Yeah. Another kind of tool I thought for teaching how to speak is familiarity with popular rhetorical devices Mm -hmm. Uh, this goes with listening but also you can use them and it's not always manipulative or evil that's just a a skill and a way of talking and I Mm -hmm. I think that's important you mentioned foreign languages I think just learning languages has helped me learning a language has helped me reappraise 
the use of English. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of changes your perception of your native language in a really interesting way. Yeah, I agree. It changes the adjectives you use a lot. Yeah. I feel like I often use more colorful language when speaking English versus obviously in French, I speak a bit more simply, mm-hmm. but that encourages me to then express myself differently in my norm, my native language. One more thing that I thought about developing speaking skills, like just normal speaking, is practicing performance and delivering of things that aren't speech. So the only time in school when you get up in front of the class and deliver something, you're speaking usually, but it could be you've pre-recorded a movie, it could be an instrument, it could be a song, a dance, something that isn't just your voice, but it kind of conditions the rest of your body to behave in front of an audience. Oh yeah, that's true. Because you and I, now that we're on film for the podcast, we realized our voices are very calm and chillaxed and we're just delivering what we have to say within our bodies are like interpretive dancing. So bridging that. That's true. Through education. I didn't even think about that, but speech is more than just the mouth, right? Speech is a full body thing. And again, I'll use myself if anyone's ever seen me present for a, for a class, you'll know it's a, it can sometimes be an ugly thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, just eye contact is important. I don't think I've ever looked you in the eyes. <laughs> oh, while one of us is talking. Organism of the week? Yeah, I was curious. You said I was going to really like it. Well, I hope you are. <gasps> a sit sprite? Hopefully people can see. Oh, it's upside down. It's upside down. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> It's probably the one organism for which it could be upside down. Is it an organism? Does it count? I'm stretching the rules a little bit. It's mythical. I think I've done a fictional creature before on this. Perhaps. I think I might Did have done a, phoenix? a dragon or something like dragon, that. Dragon, perhaps. But here we have the soot sprite. For the uninitiated, it's a little mythical, uh, fantastical being from Studio Ghibli movies. Notably, it appears in Spirited Away and also in My Neighbor Totoro before that. Mm-hmm. And for one thing, I always found it funny because those two movies aren't related but Mm -hmm. these guys are just in both yeah and they are also known as dust bunnies Mm -hmm. soot gremlins Mm -hmm. just because of the different translations yeah and in the japanese um this isn't going to be pretty but susu atari okay so they travel in packs Mm -hmm. maybe you can help me out with this one actually just describe them just describing them the travel in packs they're kind of mischievous, kind of helpful. Sometimes they help you tie your shoes. Sometimes they steal your shoes. It's true. And they are, I think they can only be seen by kids. Is that the mythos around them? I think that's what it was in Totra. Or I think those they, who believe in them. I think they did evolve a little bit by mm-hmm. um, Spirited Way because they were helping out the guy burning the coal. Yeah. But I guess we should describe it for the people who are just listening. Mm-hmm. It's just a little uh, black puffball which forms mm-hmm. out of soot. Mm-hmm. which has two white eyes. And they eat sprinkles. Right, the sprinkles. That's I wanted to mention those because, uh, yeah, I did draw those all around it. They're just these little uh, brightly colored stars. Mm-hmm. And I thought they were just a, a movie invention, but they're actually a Japanese candy. Really? Yeah, it's called uh, kompeto. Cool. These colorful little candies are, are actually, they look exactly like that, even in the real <laughs> world, really which, funny. which is funny. And that's actually a good example of why I brought these guys up because I, I wasn't just like, Oh, my organism is fictional. I was like, there's a reason behind this, which is that in a roundabout way, even something so bizarre and very clearly not real as this can be educational in a movie because it sparks your interest in new things and Mm -hmm. it gets you interested. Like I was really wondering when I first watched these movies, were these based on anything? Was there any Mm -hmm. like Japanese folklore or mythology that these were inspired by? Like it happens a lot in the Ghibli movies. 
And now we know about the candy, mm-hmm. Competo. Cool. So it's like... Yeah, I watched Totoro as a 18-year-old, 19-year-old, and I swear to you, a part of me wished they were real. Like, I thought for a moment while watching those movies, do these <laughs> exist? And I knew they wouldn't exist as, like, spirits, but I thought they might exist as, like, a type of bug that looked like that, and I was just like, I want to, to watch one, because they looked so soft. <laughs> but that was my 18-year-old's brain yeah. functioning. I don't know, like, you said that just as a joke, but it's kind of unsettling that you thought that. It was, it's an abstract thought. I sure. didn't think they existed, but okay. I wanted them to. Uh, yes, you wanted them to. Mm-hmm. I get it. Um, I didn't really have much else on these except because the next question for the episode is um, all about educational movies and so it's, you know, how movies can be used as educa- educational tools rather and also discussing their value of, uh, in that way of present day movies. Mm-hmm. The only other thought I had on these is that they're fully cinematic because they, mm-hmm. like this is not going to work in any other medium really because no. they're very simple. Mm-hmm. They are 2D and they kind of uh, are entertaining because of their dynamism, because of their movement. Mm-hmm. So I think when movies can be educational, it's like, that's a, this is a very movie creature. But that was all I had on it. Cool. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. I started by looking at how we can learn from movies because I feel like movies are not the place to learn about hands-on things. You're not going to learn how to fix a bike from watching a movie for the most part. Hmm. What you will learn, for me, I found a lot of history I've learned through film. And you often tell me stories about your Canadian history class and your world history class that you took in high school. And the things that stuck out to you most were conveyed through film because it brings to life not just the facts and the dates that you could learn through a textbook, but it brings to life the dialect, the environment, the costumes and what it looked like right yeah i actually had a a perfect quote for that which is films are particularly important in education because they help students to retain the information for a longer time pictures and words are processed differently in our brains making the information stick longer than when reading a print media the pictorial representations enable students to recall the information quickly it's a quote uh from an article for filminc.com by a writer called jack smite and it, it struck me because that is indeed how films help me remember things because I will recall an image a lot quicker than I'll recall someone saying something like a, a fact like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like we were saying with Bill Nye that it's quite common that we'll hear, we'll hear a song mm-hmm. and then that will put us into a memory and from there we can navigate to the, to the fact of it. I think it's the same with images and, mm-hmm. you know, particular frames in movies. Mm-hmm. I agree. And then there were two more things that I thought we really, we tend to learn from movies and that is social skills and humor. And let me explain these because perhaps it doesn't make too much sense. Obviously, we get a lot of our sense of humor from parents and people who are raising us and people around us. But I think a lot of our sense of humor comes from films. And this is the second time we've talked about this today. But I think it is relevant because in the solo scene, I think humor will obviously remain. We both love funny things. But I find humor is almost like this evil, this tool that can be used for evil. Like, oh, we're going to laugh about this person or we're going to laugh about this type of thing. Mm-hmm. And it encourages you to not be critical in this roundabout way. It's like, okay, we're going to, for example, with Trump, it's like we're going to make fun of how he looks or how he delivers his speech or even tendencies he has. But then it allows, it stops you from actually engaging with the root of the issue or the root of like the system that allowed this person to get to where they are. And I feel like in movies... Often, that's how we get our sense of humor. So I think in the solo scene, it will be a bit more 
calculated, a bit more sensitive to that fact that this is impacting people's politics and their ethics. Mm. And then the social skills part, I think a lot of the times when we see relationships modeled, you have a very limited circle that you grow up in. You see the people who raise you, you see your immediate family and a couple of friends, maybe their families, but you get a lot of your social dynamics from the movies and the TV shows that right, you watch. And, and intimately as well. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you say you see this growing up, mm-hmm. but you never see growing up in real life, you'll never see like a husband and wife mm-hmm. um, on their first date or something mm-hmm. or, or getting married because exactly. you might have never been to a wedding, but you've mm-hmm. seen that episode in The Simpsons or you've seen that one movie. Like we see, mm-hmm. I've seen many weddings through film. Mm-hmm. I've only been to one. Yeah. My own. <laughs> <laughs> the flex, I don't know. I don't know. But I think we need to be aware of that we learn a lot of our social skills from film, even if we don't realize we do. Because the only reason I knew how to act on a first date was from watching a bunch of TV shows where there were first dates and maybe you learn how not to act when people are shown to be bumbling or shown to be uncomfortable or make someone else uncomfortable. So there's so much we learn from them. And it's like we learn how we interact with the earth from movies. Oh, I watched a lot of National Geographic growing up, so I know to tend to the plants. But if you were watching a bunch of, what are some violent shows? I don't know them. But some like kind of a bit more crazy out there shows, then you don't realize the impact that you have on the planet and so on. So those are the ways that we learn and that we can then perhaps go into the rest of the conversation. I do agree with you that humor and our social skills, which are basically our whole selves, mm-hmm. come even our memories. Like I, that's our memories. Yeah. It, it's it's very weird. Our relationships um, come from films almost disproportionately. And I, yeah, I'll say disproport, disproportionately because I think for the solo scene, none of these things are inherently bad, but mm-hmm. I think they take up too much of our experience of, of humor or friendship or memory today. Mm-hmm. I think we rely too much on movies. Mm-hmm. And in the solo scene, as I, as I say, I think these things should all still exist, but we, we shouldn't, we probably shouldn't watch so many movies. Mm-hmm. Let me put it like that. Yeah, and I'm, as you say this, I'm worried that maybe you and I watch way more films than everyone else, but maybe we don't. Maybe we're average. No, I don't think so because um, everyone watches TV shows. That's true. And if you're not watching TV shows, then quite often you're on the internet, mm-hmm. which is just a weird, diluted uh, <laughs> collection of micro movies. Mm-hmm. Short film days. collection. Yeah, that's what TikTok is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, along the line of that, though, I was focusing specifically on children's programming, mm-hmm. which is a word that I even wrote it with this on. Yeah, quotes. With the quotes, because I was like, programming, that's such a weird word. But again, I don't think it's, it's all bad. I was thinking about what influenced me. And we always say that our humor was both, both of our humors were strongly shaped by SpongeBob SquarePants. SpongeBob, right? Yeah. Um, but also I was trying to think what else shaped me, not just as a, what I find funny, but just as a human. Mm-hmm. And what came to mind was Scooby-Doo, mm-hmm. Recess, mm-hmm. Disney's Recess, that is. Yeah. And just, just Pixar movies in general. Those are probably the, the three, the three things and I think the good thing about those is that they all teach good lessons for the most part. Mm-hmm. And this isn't an example of me. I don't want this conversation to be us saying movies and TV shows for kids were so much better in our day and now they're all awful. Mm-hmm. But there are some trends. I mean, they might have been well on the way in our day, but there, there's mm-hmm. some really bad TV shows that, that don't teach good things. You were talking about how you were modeling Caillou's uh, 
tantrums one episode. Oh, no, DW from Arthur, excuse me. Yeah, so the child. Um, oh, Arthur, Arthur was another adult. one that shaped me. Um, mm. <laughs> but one that I thought of was the dumbing down of, of characters in, in kids mm. shows. And an example of this over the last like 20 years, I think, is Patrick in SpongeBob. Because mm. originally when you watch SpongeBob, he, Patrick is like this uh, wise guy. Mm-hmm. SpongeBob goes to him for advice. He's like the, the savant kind of living mm-hmm. in his rock. And the advice is usually bad, which is what's mm-hmm. funny. But he wasn't just a two-year-old, mm-hmm. which I think is what he became, which, mm-hmm. is, which was kind of a weird transition to watch. And we noticed it even as children. Yes. Like, Why is Patrick like this now? Yeah, because he used to be competent, yeah. even if it was wrong. But mm-hmm. he read... He, he was, he, like, yeah, he, he yeah. was reading, yeah. Yeah, like he had ideas, he did things. But yeah. then in the new ones, it's like he's just... Just a baby. Basically a baby. That's <laughs> like the best way to put it. Yeah. And I think it's important to be a bit more PBS when you're making films. PBS, right? Because PBS, I've never watched something on there and been like, ooh, that's not right. No, yeah, you, you have to... I think there should be more effort put into kids' film mm-hmm. than is put into adults' film because yeah. it's, it's more important. Yeah. But I think right now what it is is that, oh, it's just for kids. Mm-hmm. Who cares? It's just the emoji movie or whatever. Who cares? Yeah, it just needs to be stimulating like visually and auditorially, not intellectually. But I think, yeah, it's very important for kids to watch things because parents can't always be that engaging. Like sometimes the parents just need a break. Okay, we're going to show them a program, but it doesn't need to just be Baby Shark or like baby sensory videos that are just like super addicting. It can be something stimulating and thought-provoking. For the kids. Was there anything in your childhood that you can say was a definite good that you that we didn't already mention? Or maybe a definite bad even? I loved Little Bear and yeah, Little Bear and Franklin. Bear were and Franklin. Like those are the ones I watched the really grainy, kind of muted colors. I didn't watch many normal like, those are normal kid cartoons, but I didn't watch a lot of like really bright ones until I was a bit older. And I really liked them. They taught me they kind of shaped what I find sad. They shaped what I find nice. Yeah, I I was just thinking that. We don't want to mention too much because people are going to crack the solo scene code and realize where it all comes from. <laughs> it comes from us watching Little Bear and Bear and Same Bears when we were younger. Mm-hmm. I but don't the thing think is, I'm joking. No, I don't think you're joking. <laughs> because I never quilted. My mom didn't quilt. My grandmother didn't quilt. But I remember in particular one episode of the Berenstain Bears where they have a quilt fair. They're making quilts. And to this day, it's something I think about aesthetically when I am like choosing a quilt or I'm choosing a fabric to use. I think about this episode and it's like, why would I think that's nice? I just saw it there. I didn't experience it in the real world, but it's because you're a malleable brain. So you need to make sure that those malleable brains are being exposed to things that are good and simple yeah. even. Because it's like you can watch iCarly growing up and it's like, oh, her bedroom's really good and cool. But no oh, one's right. going to have an iCarly bedroom. It's very bedroom. materialist, a yeah. lot of the, the kids' programming. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, you mentioned that, well, I don't think movies are good for teaching us exactly how to fix a bike, I think you said. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I mean, skill-wise, obviously, it's better to just read it or look it up. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's a, a, a traditional element to films that can be a good mm-hmm. thing. Um, the movie that made me think this was The Northman, which just came out a couple of weeks ago, which I went to see, mm-hmm. which is a fictional movie, but has taught me... Um, taught me a decent amount about the the Viking, uh, I think, 14th century in which it's set. And more importantly, sparked an interest, and now you want to start looking into that thing. Mm -hmm. So I don't think skills, but I do think like genuinely researched, uh, especially historical films or films that 
take place in a culture for which you're not a part of like it could be current mm -hmm. day but maybe set in china and i don't know much about current day china so mm -hmm. a movie set there if it's well researched it's going to teach me quite a lot about it yeah. like that's that's a thing um because film has such a power to to transport and i think in soul there should be more of these really because like film it doesn't have to be set in the present day very familiar environment and especially something that uh what do they say gets my goat is how many animated films are set in say north america in 2022 mm -hmm. so why would you why would this be the time that most of the films <laughs> are set because with animation you can't even use the budget um mm -hmm. excuse of saying well it's more expensive to set it in dinosaur time mm -hmm. it's like no it isn't you can just you can draw <laughs> like any it could be anywhere at any time so yeah so that's something that i think that there could be more of because it can really teach i mean history is a, an obvious example but like art i've i've been exposed to art of different styles and um and different movements than I've than I have in real life through film quite a lot um like psychology the, the reason I mentioned the northmen is because it doesn't just teach you about the world of the the vikings but it gives you an insight into the psychology of what the people were like then which I mm -hmm. which is something I find really fascinating the movies really don't do very much language obviously mm -hmm. just like anything biology architecture yeah. I noted that films will be used to teach the emotion behind the subjects because people can study psychology and can study world history art but until you see it on film or you see it in real life if you have the opportunity but you really can't for a lot of subjects you're not going to fully integrate it into your consciousness and into yeah. your pool of memories that you draw from because as you said it is it becomes a memory in a way that learning i feel like doesn't very cool my final thought on this is just that there should be a whole genre of movies in the in the solo scene which are idyllic which are just really nice imagery mm -hmm. because i remember we know a few of these films and it probably gets boring to the listener because we always mention the same ones yeah. but every time i try and find similar ones there there are no search terms there are no it's not like oh this is a western or this is a sci-fi mm -hmm. so there should be a word for uh films that are just really nice imagery because i think in the solo scene everyone's like one of one of the key things of the solo scene is that almost everyone has a solo scene in mind like all the people are trying to lever, lever la monde. <laughs> Build towards something. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like historically a lot of those idyllic films have just been propaganda, which ideally will not be the case. <laughs> no, no, and I don't even think it has to be explicitly future. Mm -hmm. I think it can just be really nice image. And when you say the propaganda, a lot of it's backwards looking, right? Mm -hmm. Or I can see it's... Uh, pastoral mm -hmm. is nostalgic. I don't think it it should be that. Like that's no, what it could it, that's be what... solar punk. It could be and it's different for everyone. Someone will want to live in a really solar punk world, but some people do want to just live on the land. Some people want to live in a bit more of a simple concrete area. Like there's different solar scenes for everyone. Yeah. Oh, another thought I had with regards to telling old stories uh, like fables kind of through film, mm. which is I think why the question originally arose from last week is that I understand why studios try and be subversive because it's like this is a twist and people that excites people but I think quite often if it's a really old story all that happens is that the audience says no that's not how the story the story goes because the audience knows the story they're not there because they want to be surprised they're there because they want to see it mm -hmm. it would be like if there was a a big movie I don't know like a, a new big Star Wars movie mm -hmm. and it was very it was modeled after the tortoise and the hare that could happen that's not against the it's not a crazy idea mm -hmm. but then at the end actually the hair won mm -hmm. the audience would be like 
you change it for the sake of it, but that's just not how it goes. Yeah. Yeah, I see. What do you mean? Don't twist for the sake of twisting. The gymnasium, one of Aaron's favorite imaginary places, historic places, I suppose. And I didn't know much about the gymnasium. I knew that it was a place in ancient Greece yep. that was used for physical and mental education. But looking into it, I just thought, well, I know why they stopped existing in their original form. But I was like, why did these just stop existing? I was wondering that as well. Because it I mean, seems... They didn't stop, right? Like they evolved. Well, yeah. We still have gymnasiums today, mm -hmm. but no one's reading there. It's mm -hmm. a problem. No one's going to take a bath in a bathhouse there. Because they had bathhouses. They had philosophic groves. Yeah. What? So, so I, I brought a bit of the history. So the gymnasiums began in about 6th century BC in ancient Greece as just like very simple outdoor groves or outdoor areas where people would exercise. So mm -hmm. it was like fitness only for men, only uh, adult men. Mm -hmm. And usually what they'd be doing is wrestling, running, boxing, archery, javelin. So it was, it was kind of like a military preparation area. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was more of these kind of realistic fitness, what would you say, strengths? Not like mm -hmm. really isolated. Like today a gymnasium is like, are you working on my triceps? Yeah. Like this was more full body. Yes. Like I think a modern example would be rock climbing. Like that's mm -hmm. a, or swimming. That's a good. That's a good example. Yeah. Um, and they were often or usually in the nude. Mm-hmm. Where Always the word comes from? Gymnasium, right? Yeah. It means a place to be nude. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is funny. Uh, there was often rhythmic music, and a person there specifically for massaging and oiling. Mm -hmm. So. Okay. Now, this is going to sound like a flex, but I designed my gymnasium, then looked into what they were, and I low-key designed the perfect gymnasium. I said that it needs to have a mindfulness space for emotional intelligence development and for massage and for peaceful existence and like things that facilitate that. I said I needed to have a boxing martial arts or somewhere for ecstatic, ecstatic dancing or movement or whatever. <laughs> And I was like, then I started looking into him like, whoa, even like the music part was mm -hmm. something that I thought of. Live music as well. It's something that we lack today. So I was like, it needs to happen in the gymnasium in the Solocene. It's funny that it used to exist. Uh, I guess it sucks that it was only for naked men. Well, <laughs> speak for yourself. I think that would be great. But um, <laughs> no, I did the same. I, I was like, I'm designing a, a gymnasium for the Solocene, but it was just a gymnasium. Mm -hmm. There were very, very few specific yeah. same thing, but it was it was partially deliberately archaic because, yeah, this is the place that's like you're free to do your thing. Mm -hmm. So I had some rules for mine. Okay. So one of them is over 18s only. I'm pretty fixed on this. Okay. Maybe 17s, but I just think it should be a place for grown-ups. I, I see. Think it's, I like that. Because in the solo scene, there'll be these really high-tech, highly funded schools for kids of all ages. Yeah. But this is not a school. This is a gymnasium. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, kids, they have their own, a lot of their own places. Mm -hmm. We can design one of those next week. Yeah, let's Some, do that. Place for kids. Mm -hmm. Educational place for kids. Cool. The ancient Greek ones were gendered. And initially I was like, well, we don't need to gender them. Mm -hmm. But then I was actually thinking, maybe that's not a bad idea. Because there's women's only gyms, right? Mm -hmm. And we know the reasons for those. Yeah. And women seem to like them. Perhaps. You think it's a bad idea? Well, I think <laughs> this is kind of an intense subject I suppose to come into unprepared in a mm -hmm. conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but 
I think there'll be far less, ideally zero differences. Perhaps there could be sections if women are more comfortable, they want to go there. But I don't think women will be more comfortable amongst just other women in the solo scene. But maybe not. I mean, I feel like there's a feminine bond that just kind of exists. That's what I'm saying. I, from I think like, it could be like, this is where the women hang out. This is where the men hang out. Guys being dudes, women being chicks. This <laughs> 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 the episode we get canceled. I feel like. Okay, well, that's the difference. I think they might, I think, I'm not, well, I wasn't fixed on it. I just thought it's not an awful idea it's, for them to be separate. It's something to consider. I don't think it needs to be necessarily divided. I don't think exclusion's ever good. Like if a woman just would be more comfortable in the other set, like anyway, this is probably a conversation Uh, I shouldn't come into unprepared. My next rule was cleanliness. Super clean. Have to be clean yourself. Mm -hmm. And the building has to be clean. You see this even in gyms when people can't even re-rack a weight. Mm -hmm. That should be a rule. Yeah. And this place is going to be more on camp, so you're going to need to do more than re-rack the weights. Yeah, no loose band-aids. Floating. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, my next one was not, not nudity exactly. This is more of, less a rule, more of an allowance. Mm. Um, but I think like shirts off. I think okay. bare feet, and, and this goes with cleanliness as well. Like you have to be clean. I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's fine. I mean, I I get frustrated at shoes, as I mentioned before. You're not a big shoe guy. I think this should just be that place. I yeah. think um, another allowance I thought was loud noises. Mm-hmm. I think you should be able to give a bit of a, a scream. Yeah, I'm definitely like, this is shaping up to be an interesting space. It's almost like the wilderness, but in... Right. It's the wilderness in civility. In civility, yeah. And I'll get to this with my devi- design, but there, there is, I was thinking like sound dampening stone. Mm. So the people who are writing don't have to do with like screaming so much. Yeah. The little noises here and there is fine, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, I mean, it's even in ancient times, there were these huge complexes. So, like, there's going to be space for everything. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, just like a free space that it's like, okay, we're going to get together and we're going to have this. I want to use the word ritual, but I feel like that sounds so culty and so, like. No, no. Exercise like is ritual. It's a space for ritual. And that's why when you brought up the gender division thing, I was like, perhaps there couldn't be space for different things because it's like. Yeah, there's just space for a ritual. And it's like, I mean, the idea of them from Plato was that it's like the body and the mind coming together, merging, and that you can't just have a spiritual pursuit without a physical pursuit and so on. And I feel like this space will just kind of cultivate all of that in the solo scene. That's exactly what I had. Strengthening mind, body, and community. Mm-hmm. And it's a place of freedom. Yeah. Uh, another rule was no screens. Because mm-hmm. I think they're too breakable. I want this to be a place you can be free to like mm-hmm. push stuff. Yeah. Step hard. Mm-hmm. What, what do they say? Walk heavy. Step heavy. Step heavy. Heavy stepper. Okay. Um, and the last one was perhaps you have to pass some kind of human body anatomy <laughs> test or course before you join. Because I think that it's, it's wild that gyms allow people to... You know, like how pools have to, like the lifeguard has to say, okay, well, show me you can actually swim a lap before and then I can keep, you know, like that? I see. Have you had that in pools? Yeah, I've also had it in gyms though. It's not, I think what you're getting at is it's not like prove to me that you can lift 100 pounds. It's like, we'll show you the ropes. It's about form. It's not about the, the, the weight, it's about the form. Exactly. So I think doing some kind of a 
because this is what I'll use the example of the gym I went to. They took me around every single machine, every single thing that was in the gym. Yeah. And they said, show me how you would use it, basically. But I was thinking also like nutrition, mm-hmm. things like this. But then correct them and then allow them entrance. And it's not like, oh, if you can't pass this test, you're never getting in. But it's like you need to have this very basic foundation of how to use things and how to exist in order to make the most of the space, not hurt yourself, not hurt other people. That's <laughs> what I'm gathering. Hmm. But um, a couple more things that I was thinking in my gymnasium. The original ones had sculpting and sketching and such. And I think that'll definitely be a part of this. Just a, a room where there's a bunch of clay wheels and things to make, basically. I also have three tenets of my gymnasium, which is intense, interdisciplinary, and international because I feel like it could be a good space for getting to like hands-on, I guess, understand other traditions and other cultures because, okay, you watch the movies, you're interested in this, and then in this space there's a bunch of different people, perhaps, because I was thinking like in the traditional ones there's like boxing and wrestling and stuff. This yeah. one could have just a bigger range of physical activities that are full body, but that also integrate the spirit and strengthening of the mind i think it could be very international or intercultural sure yeah i had um only a few design ideas one of them was hills make it hilly very grassy i don't really like how we never set foot on grass or it's genuinely hard to do in a lot of (laughs) cities um i was thinking like a grass track Mm -hmm. instead of the, the normal rubber ones i guess oh i super approve of that a grass track with um one or a few running lanes and one walking lane. Cool. So, so it's, and this is kind of the in between between the, mm-hmm. the buildings on the outside, you know, the columns and the stone and everything where people are doing their intellectual work mm-hmm. and the physical work. Yeah, cool. Close to a library in proximity, just mm-hmm. like it was in the ancient times. And food on site, that was my main thing. I also had that. <laughs> I said gardens and kitchens. Yeah. And it could be you could go there to learn. You could go there to perhaps there's a lot of jobs in the gymnasium or yeah. perhaps it's volunteer. I don't exactly know. It's a community space. So ideally, I think it would just be, yeah, on Tuesdays, I work in the gymnasium kitchen and I help prepare the community meals or help prepare food. But I think food is important because there's no public food spaces for the most part, unless you're in a food court, which is like, I like food courts, but I also think a cool, like a really hearty mm. food space that you go to. For, fun. for me, it's, it's the naturalness of it. It's the grass um, with exercise and it's the sunlight everywhere even in the areas i was thinking no electric lights whatsoever even in the areas Mm -hmm. that are just for uh intellectual work Mm -hmm. it's all sunlight it's all natural light because a a lot of towns have some kind of lifestyle center like i'm thinking of one in particular that i used to go to that had an indoor pool an indoor rink a library and Mm -hmm. a couple food stalls and i I did really like it there but so imagine if that had been you could feel the breeze coming through and everything mm-hmm. and you wouldn't have to drive half an hour there with just a big parking lot outside. Yeah, I agree. And I think the thing with the Solacene Gymnasium is that it's you're not going to have to pay a membership fee. Your fee will likely be in your service to the space, as you said, keeping it clean. Perhaps you work in the kitchen for an hour a week and that's kind of your fare. Perhaps you coach, perhaps you give lectures. Like I feel like it'll be a bit more collaborative in that way so you don't have to like monetarily pay, but you can contribute while also learning and then it's just this cycle of like intergenerational knowledge being passed around and developed and new ideas coming out of the gymnasium 
oh, did you hear what came out of the gymnasium this week? A new idea for a film about <laughs> lobsters. <laughs> Maybe that was some uh, foreshadowing for your organism choice next week, huh? Speaking of next week, any other questions? Any other questions? I really like this one with the gymnasium. I kind of want something else fun, but I don't know. Well, I said we can design a kid's place. That's very open. Yeah, I guess that is. But I think that we're nearing the end of the education semester. I'm trying to think mm-hmm. if there's anything that we have yet to cover. Yeah. I did want to talk about educational philosophies. Oh, yeah, let's do that. So what are some of my favorite educational philosophies and yeah. yours, Aaron? No, no. The question would just be, what are some of Alicia's favorite educational <laughs> philosophies? And I'll do yeah. my best to guess. And um, I might come up with another question, but off air. Thank you all for listening. If you want to follow us on Instagram, we have a couple of accounts that we post clips from the podcast. So maybe you don't like listening or watching. You can listen to the clips on Instagram at Solacene Clips. And thank you so much. Bye. Bye.